I am Seidler Feller, was the executive director of the Yitzchak Rabin Hillel Center for Jewish Life at UCLA for 40 years. He now serves as the director emeritus, also director of the Hartman Fellowship for Campus Professionals, and um, involved in, in academic work and a faculty, Shalom Hartman Institute, Wexner Heritage Foundation, really a lot of teaching, a lot of learning. And on a personal level, on a personal level, I had the I had the good I had the great merits to uh, to serve as the senior Jewish educator at the UCLA Hillel for two years, uh, where I worked alongside and reported to Rev Chaim, and it was uh, one of the great one of the great honors uh, of my life to work with him, to 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 see how Torah comes into action on a college campus and beyond. And uh, today's topic is a good example of how of how his, uh, how his Torah operates, where we look at a major contemporary problem like racism or xenophobia, and we look at how does the Torah respond to it? We don't just say, you know, it's wrong. There's actually a, a way to work through it, a way to work through it, to be inspired by ideas, but to look at the problems, not just look at the, the, the solutions, look at the problems. So we only have an hour together, and uh, he, uh, hopefully you received your source sheet as you should have. Uh, AJ is gonna post it again on the side, and also it's gonna be on the screen, if that's more helpful for you as well. So uh, with that, please join me welcoming Rabbi Chaim Seidlerfellow. Thank you for being with us, Rabbi Chaim. Thank you very much, Rabbi Shmuley. And uh, I, I guess I, I have to say one word that uh, when, 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 when Shmuley came to uh, UCLA, so, you know, in, 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 in Chassidut, we talk about Ha'ala'ah, which is an elevation. So, so Shmuley, Shmuley took off, but he raised us all up uh, together with him. Um, unfortunately, he left. You know, so so we landed. He 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 never landed. So he's uh, he, he's still taking people with him, which is really a, a blessing for all of us. Um, so as as was introduced, this is a broad topic, and I have a lot many sources. I'm not going to be able to uh, uh, to go through all of them. I'll touch on 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 the main ideas, and we'll study some sources. Uh, more, more directly. Um, we are in a crisis uh, uh, in, in the world, but in America as well. But as you see, the uh, issues of racism uh, arise uh, throughout the world. Uh, we're in a period uh, where there's a, a great um, uh, um, uh, advocacy for nationalism, um, for a type of particularism, um, and and it's it's exclusionary, and exclusionary ideology has consequences in terms of the other, the people who are not necessarily considered to be uh, part of the majority, um, and and in America, uh, the the there are, I mean there are actually two communities um, that that have suffered. Uh, because uh, from from the onset, that's the indigenous population and Africans who were brought, who were brought here as slaves uh, and their descendants, as we know from 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 all the data, uh, and in particular this uh, this last period of time brought brought to light all the violence um, uh, uh, against uh, individuals, uh, violence by officials, uh, violence by people taking law into their own hands. Um, and I cannot breathe, you know, sort of, uh, it, it's stuck in my throat, this idea of I cannot breathe, uh, because it's something that we can all identify with. Um, so I feel that it's imperative that we, uh, that we address the issue as a Jewish community, the issue is hanging over us. Do we have any latent or not so latent racism within our own, uh, within, within our own community? Um, the issue is a public issue. 
uh, in American life. So uh, we're going to be pressed in terms of policy as this next administration assumes leadership uh, in government. Where are we as Jews? Um, and also uh, internally uh, with, 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 within, 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 the com within the community, uh, is it possible that a significant um, uh, population among, uh, uh, among the J Jewish community uh, persists uh, with racist feelings that influence them in their political and voting patterns? Um, and how do we address that? Uh, because I, 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 don't, I, I, I do think that uh, the vast majority of Jews would consider the notion that they're racist to be, to be reprehensible. Uh, I have to down the kafschut and, and see the merit in terms of our own uh, communal uh, inclinations. Um, but we shouldn't forget, I want to say that, that it's a Jew who's designed the White House policy on immigration and has had a great influence in terms of all the discourse on minorities. So that we have a hand, and not, it's not just one Jew, but a major Jewish figure uh, in, 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 our, in, in our government who's actually responsible for, uh, for uh, generating uh, a, an, a, an attitude and, and sympathy uh, with, a form of, with a form of racism. So that's number one. And number two, even though we can say with a great deal of pride that we were with blacks, our situation in America, our situation has changed. And in the last generation, we've been ensconced in the ruling class. And we have to acknowledge that and what the consequences of that are, both in terms of our alliance, in terms of our self-understanding, and what we need to do that's different from what we've done before. Right. There is a book that I recommend if people are interested, written by a UCLA professor uh, called How Jews Became White Folks. Um, and, and, I mean, and, and if you want to look online, uh, Karen Brodkin also has an essay, so you can read a summary of her ideas uh, in, 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 in an essay. But I think it's important to understand how we've been classified as whites and how we have embraced it. It's not that we've rejected it. There's a degree of assimilation in that, and we felt that we actually have moved forward in that regard. All right, so that, that's the background. Now, what do I want to do today? So my strategy is uh, to deal with four different issues. We most probably will only be able to get to, th to three. And the first issue is, who is Adam? That's how I advertise the class. Who's included in humanity in this grand category of God's creation? Number two, the prejudice that's emanated from biblical sources utilized by the church and by some Jews to justify the enslavement of blacks, what's called in the common sort of political world the, and, and, sometimes, and the academic world, the Hamitic hypothesis that has to do with Ham. Um, even though it might be mistaken and we'll, we'll, we'll see that, the hypothesis that sees Ham, Ham, and his son Canaan as cursed, uh, and that's attributed, that allows for an attribution to another one of Ham's children, to Cush. Cush is the Africa, black. So the Cushite type is linked to a curse in this hypothesis, and the Torah then becomes the source, the source of the pre of worldwide, of universal prejudice uh, against against blacks. Number, number three, I want to investigate uh, Judaism's attitude towards slavery.
slavery and basically make an argument, a revisionist argument based on Torah in terms of how we look upon on slavery. And if we have time, maybe to touch on the question of reparations, or we can save that. I can give you some, some inkling as to where to go if you want to deal with the question of reparations. And you have it in the sources, and I think you can, you, you can get to it yourself. All right. Now, my guidance for dealing with these questions is uh, uh, the following assumption, which is that all traditions, all traditions promote what I would call teachings of contempt and include texts of terror. All traditions. The question for me is, how do they deal with those teachings? Do they strive to clean up their act and, and, and reform and refine and push these ideas beyond their, their articulation. One of the problems is that scriptural notions, in scripture there's no whiteout. And in, in, in Talmudic teaching, the rabbis rarely, if ever, never uh, uh, um, uh, uh, use language like, you know, to, to accuse one another or Torah, certainly not, of being immoral. So how do we address those texts of terror, that's a question. And I generally judge a tradition by how effective it is in addressing their teachings of contempt. Now, I had a Rebbe uh, who taught me how to approach this question, and his name was Christer Stendhal. He was the dean of the Harvard Divinity School, and he was a fellow, he was a senior fellow um, at the Hartman Institute. And uh, he once said the following, that when he taught his when he taught his divinity students and the texts of the New Testament uh, that were in the reading cycle in church that were contemptuous of Jews, so he proceeded as follows to tell them, number one, your obligation as a preacher or as a teacher is to identify and acknowledge the text as being prejudicial, right? So we have to think about that, right? Number one. Number two. Your obligation then is to contextualize. New Testament, tell your students, first century, it has nothing to do with Jews today. It's an internal battle in antiquity. Number three, reinterpret if possible. And if it's impossible to reinterpret, then he went ahead and he said, then I tell them they have to condemn the text. Now that's, that's a hard, that, that's a hard uh, responsibility. That's a burden. Uh, right? Uh, we'll, 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 are we willing to do that? Now, um, uh, Stendhal, who, by the way, who wrote about Paul and anti-Semitism in the New Testament, I mean, he was a tzaddik in, 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 as a Christian minister. So Stendhal also was a very refined person. He never said to me, so Chaim, you have to do the same. But by implication, what he was teaching me was, since this is how we proceed, how I proceed, then it, it's also an obligation for you. I just would, let me just say something to, I don't know if there are any rabbis on now. How do we address the reading of the portion of Amalek in our synagogues on the Shabbos and Parshat Zahor? What does it mean? How, do we perpetuate the that commandment in a way, or do we address it? Do we feel obligated to address it? So that's that's the, the obligation that, what's his name, that, that left with me. All right, the last piece of, of introduction, I've already sort of taken too much time, is that with something personal. I remember when Martin Luther King was assassinated uh, and, and how I shuddered and I, how I felt the same way as I had felt four years earlier when I learned of JFK's 
assassination. So I, I carry that me that memory that memory with me. But an interesting point: the I, I was aware, not active in the civil rights movement, aware of the civil rights movement, and in later life I became aware of the fact that half a world away in South Africa there was another movement, an anti-apartheid movement, and the whites who were most prominent in the movement against apartheid were Jews. So there were religious Jews involved in the civil rights movement in America, and there were secular communists involved in the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa. So I asked myself, what is it about Jews? Here you have secular Jews and religious Jews. Now, one of the secular Jews was a man named Joe Slovo. He was the foreign minister of the, uh, of the ANC, of the African National Congress. And I once saw on 60 Minutes a group of African National Congress soldiers singing Joe Slovo. He was in exile. He was in exile. And Joe Slovo's name was Joseph Soloveitchik. So in other words, a very deep, deeply embedded commitment to this, this sense of justice and equality in our tradition that carries forth religiously and secularly. And that's something that we, 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 need, to, we need to recover. Another personal note is that I'm a Brook, I was a Brooklyn Dodgers fan. And one of the things that really meant a lot to me, and I, I went to many games when I was a child, Jackie, I, I followed Jackie Robinson because Jackie Robinson was me. And the fact that the Dodgers broke the color line, as we said in those days, that was about how Jews could break into American society. That's what it represented to me. So I see the relationship with blacks in America and Jews in America to be intertwined. We can't let go of that because it means something about the country that we live in and its potential. I stood at Obama's first inauguration and I felt that we were at a moment of transition and transformation. We've lost some of that uh, spirit. Can we recover that spirit that seemed, has this summer re, re, uh, given us the ability to retain or to uh, reattain that spirit, if we can say that? Okay, let's begin. All right, so I want to begin with uh, our first source. Our first source is this telegram. Uh, all right, source number one. Um, I'm going to read it to you. I, it doesn't, I, I don't know if it's, if it's clear in your, in your source sheets, but this is how it reads. I look forward to privilege of being present at meeting tomorrow, uh, 4 p.m. Likeliness exists that Negro problem will be like the, the weather. Everybody talks about it. Ah, I have to share my screen actually. So hold on one second. Let me share my screen. And here is my, where's my sources? Here are my sources. Okay, so let's go. Here we are. All right, here it is. Likelihood likelihood exists that negro problem will be like the weather everybody talks about it but uh uh, uh but no, nobody does anything about it please uh, demand of religious leaders personal involvement not just solemn declarations we forfeit right to worship god as long as we continue to humiliate um uh, humiliate what does that say negroes Church synagogues have failed. They must repent. Ask of religious leaders to call for national repentance and personal sacrifice. Let religious leaders donate one month's salary to a fund for Negro housing and education. I propose that you, Mr. President, declare a moral emergency. Uh, a, 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 a moral emergency 
um, uh, for, for aid, uh, a moral emergency, uh, a Marshall Plan for aid to Negroes is becoming a necessity. The hour calls for moral grandeur and spiritual audacity. That's the telegram that Abraham Joshua Heschel sent to JFK um, at, at the, uh, 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 as he was uh, traveling to Washington uh, for this meeting, for this, uh, for this summit meeting uh, of, of religious leaders. All right, let's go to our first bank of sources, and this is what we're going to do. I want you to see how prejudice seeps into the tradition from a place that you wouldn't expect it. That is, who is Adam? Anybody knows that Adam is every man. It's a universal category, not so simple. There is a drasha, there is a rabbinic teaching based on a Talmudic uh, statement that excludes uh, everybody but Jews. The teaching is centered on the question of impurity. I'm gonna read the sources in English, all right? Uh, the, the, verse, the verse that's the context is a verse in Numbers, Adam ki amut be'ohel, if an Adam dies in a tent, and then, and then uh, what proceeds is a discussion of impurity. So the Rabbi Shimon Moriachai taught, the graves of Gentiles do not render items impure through a tent. That is, if you're in the tent with a dead body, a Gentile body does not render that thing or yourself impure simply by being in a tent. And you, uh, why? Why, as it is stated? And you are my sheep, the sheep of my pasture. Who's you, my sheep? The Jews. Israelites, you are the sheep of my pasture, are Adam. All right, so since the text in Ezekiel identifies the Jews as Adam, the Ta'omud is then arguing that in Numbers, when it says, Adam ki ohel, when an Adam dies in a tent, that Adam is only a Jew, from which it is derived that you, the Jewish people, are called Adam, but Gentiles are not called Adam. Whoa. Now, what does that mean? This is Shimon Bar Yochai's teaching. So is it an ontological statement? Does it mean that he wants to identify an essence of Gentiles to be not Adam, and only Jews essentially are Adam, are humans, and uh, Gentiles are less, less than fully human? Or is it a legal exclusion from the laws of impurity? which would be a simple way of understanding this exclusion, like all ritual matters, right? Gentiles don't have religious obligations. Uh, purity laws are Jewish laws. They don't have anything to do with Gentiles. So the details of purity laws don't pertain to Gentiles. That would have been, that, that's, a, that's a very simple way of looking at this. So here I want to go to, just to point out some sources, I'll read a little bit. This is Saibir Ibn Atara's 17th, 18th century Moroccan scholar uh, who eventually went to live in Eretz Israel, a mystic, and he writes as follows. The Jewish people have been elevated above other nations in that they have received the Torah without which the Jews would not be different from any other nation. The wording of our verse then reminds us, this is his comment on Adam, if a man dies, if an Adam dies in a tent, reminds us of the distinction of the Jewish people and that contact with the dead confers ritual purity on people who have been given the Torah. Lesser spirits yearn to attach themselves. And he goes on, you can read all of this. I mean, I'm sorry that I, I, I can't, I, I see that I'm not gonna be able to read all of it, but what, what he's, what what he, what he says is that here, I have already illustrated this relationship between Israel and ritual impurity by means of a parable. Listen to the parable. 
let us assume that we have two containers inside a house, one full of honey, the other full of refuse. If you take both these containers outside, it will be observed that the container full of honey attracts swarms of flies, whereas the number of flies which are attracted to the container full of refuse is insignificant by comparison. I don't know if that's true, but maybe it's true. Okay. Similarly, when a Jew dies, the fact that he was full of holiness when alive, sweet as honey, now attracts all kinds of spiritually negative elements, seeing that the soul has departed from that body. These are the forces of impurity, which always attempt to attach themselves to anything sacred. But Gentiles, right, who are not sweet, who don't have Torah, then they are the, the they don't they, they the, uh, the forces of impurity don't try to attack uh, to to attack to attach to them. Look at the last lines. The body of a dead Gentile confers ritual purity on a Jew only if the Jew touches it, not if he merely shares the same roof over airspace. The only impurity which does cling to the body of a dead Gentile, or etc. etc. So that's how he concludes. So according to Chayyim Ibn Atar, there's something deficient in someone who's not Jewish. They don't have Torah. They don't have the capacity to transcend and to be to be fully humans so that their animal instincts override their human instincts. I mean, that's the, that's, that's the implication. Now, if you don't, if you think that, that uh, that's insufficient, and I, I, again, I can't read it all, but you can see the last lines of a Chabad teaching, Shneir Zalman, the founder of the Chabad dynasty, uh, teaches the souls of the nations of the world, the last line here, however, emanate from the other unclean klipot, the shells, which contain no good what, whatever. Only the Jews who, uh, uh, who uh, draw uh, draw the, uh, the purity uh, the, the, of Torah that refines them and that gives them the capacity to realize their, their their full souls all right so we have on the one hand and i'm going to come back to this point uh sources influenced by mysticism that are completely exclusionary and identify the gentile as being by definition essentially deficient as a human being right? and, that, and these are by the way central teachings that we need to confront and we need to ask ourselves how does this you know how does this come into our tradition how can we even say that i read the uh, the orachayim hakadosh with the holy orachayim whose commentary i love and i'm repelled by his by his assertion that gentiles are somehow less human than jews and that that's something that he he, he attaches to jewish teaching on the other hand and, and i'm going to draw a conclusion in a second but i want you to see this on the other hand look at the rambam look how the rambam addresses the same issue i'm going to read paragraph 13. He says, the corpse of a Gentile does not impart ritual impurity through ohel, through a tent. This matter was, con was conveyed by the oral tradition. Whoa. Kabbalahu. In, uh, with regard to the war with Midian, it states all who touch a corpse but does not mention an ohel. So Maimonides is arguing as follows. There is no explicit mentioning of the rules of tenting in the Torah to transmit impurity. So the whole notion of transmission through Ohel is itself just a regular, a, not, not just, it's an oral tradition uh, uh, that, it's an oral tradition that uh, is, not, is not explicit, meaning it's a law. It's a law and a law only. It's a ritual law that pertains to Jews that's transmitted as a decree. Even though, now the point of course is, Rambam is very well aware of Shimon Bar Yochai's teaching. So the question anybody studying this Rambam has to ask themselves is, why doesn't he call Shimon Bar Yochai? 
Shimon Bar Yochai says explicitly there's an exclusion that someone who's not a Jew is not an Adam. The Rambam couldn't say that someone who's not a Jew is not an Adam. Because everyone, everyone was created in God in, in the divine image. And everybody has the potential. And we know that also from other Jewish sources. So Rambam argues exactly the point that I made earlier. He understands Shemu Bar Yechai, but the exclusion is only a legal exclusion. And ritual law doesn't apply to Gentiles. And it's a Kabbalah, it's a tradition that we have of, of a law regarding purity like other rituals that we have. And we don't, we, and he doesn't quote the biblical text because he doesn't want to make an, 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 an essentialist argument that somehow Gentiles are less human than Jews. Now, what's the issue here? The issue is one between a philosopher and a Kabbalist. And I, I want you to hear this because so many people are attracted to Kabbalah. Kabbalah has a very attractive spiritual system, but it is but in its origins, in its, in its context, it was prejudicial against, against non-Jews, against Gentiles. I'm sorry I used that word. I mean, it was basically against Goyim, if I can, um, excuse, me for, excuse me for using the term. Why is that? Why is that? So let's not forget the following, that Kabbalah emerged in Christian Spain in an oppressive context. Right? Philosophy emerged in Muslim Spain in an open context, in an inclusive context. And the, the philosopher was seeking ways of connecting, universal ways. The, uh, the Kabbalist was looking for exclusionary ways, why Judaism is not as superior and, and rejecting the oppressor as being a barbarian. Right? So the, the consequence of the two worldviews, of the, of the context and the two worldviews uh, yielded two different ways of looking upon uh, uh, Gentiles around us. In fact, the Kabbalah engages in a critique of philosophy as being too universal, right? And being assimilationist. Right? The Kabbalah was Jewish. The, the, the uh, philosophy was looked upon as being Greek and, and, and not sufficiently Jewish enough. And Kabbalah also identified Knesset Yisrael, the community of Israel, with the Shekhinah. So it makes an essential argument that somehow we are spiritually of a different caliber, of a different, uh, of, uh, of a different essence than anybody else, because our essence is linked directly to the divine. We contain an element of the divine. It's just like Yehuda HaLevi when he says, in Yan HaElohi, the Jew contains the matter, a matter of divinity that is somehow inherent to who they are. Uh, it's, a, it's a type of biological argument about Jewish spiritual su superiority. We can speak about bi biology and, and spirituality. So we need to be conscious of that at all times and see how that filters into religious teaching. And I must say that Jews are not the only religious community who embrace an exclusionary and discriminatory uh, religious ideology. Uh, you know that well. So the, so the point is to know it about Judaism and to be able to say that's not the only Jewish approach. In fact, my teacher, Moshe Greenberg, the who was my Bible professor at the Hebrew University and a friend, wrote an article about this very issue. And he concluded that in the, in the Israeli educational system, it's the sources of, uh, of, uh, of Yehuda Halevi, the Ramban, another mystic, uh, of uh, uh, some, some of the Chabad teachings, Maha 
Aral. Those are the sources, the, the spiritual sources that influence people's worldview and that the rational worldview is diminished in its influence. We have to recover, assert, if we, if we care, and, uh, and make the argument that the rationalists or halachists, the Rambam is a pure halachist in this regard, and that he, can, he argues for inclusion and a type of universalism based on a, very, uh, a, 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 on a very intense form of Judaism and rejects, and rejects this, uh, this type of es essentialism. Now, I mean, there are other arguments here that we, that we could uh, uh, scroll through, but I, I mean, we, we don't have time. You'll see the argument between Rabbi Akiva and, uh, and Ben Azai, it's a very interesting argument because Rabbi Akiva taught the notion that everybody learned in Hebrew school. That's a great principle of Torah, to love like your neighbor as yourself. So uh, um, Ben Azai says, no, the verse that talks about Selim Elohim is an even greater teaching. Why? Why? Because Ben Azai uh, uh, perhaps understood that it's possible that people will say Reacha your neighbor is only a Jew. So Ben Azai wanted to make an argument that everybody is equal based on everybody was created in the image of God. So that's where we, that's where we have to go. That's where we have to go in our in argumentation. Um, uh, this is another source, you'll read it. This is another mystic, uh, Shmuel de Ozida, commenting on, on, on a teaching in Pirkei Avot that shouldn't be a problem at all, which says, Chaviv Adam, uh, it's uh, a, 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 how is it translate? Beloved is man, for he was created in the image of God. So somehow uh, Shmuel Dozida turns that into Adam here means only Jews. So only Jews are are beloved of God, uh, even though the text itself. I mean, you have to really battle against the text, and and you have to be committed to this essentialist position to to skewer the text in this way and be able to, to push it in, in, a, in, 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 an, in an exclusionary, an exclusionary direct, direction. So there are two more sources that I want to mention before I close this, this unit. I mean, it's a lot, but I want you to see what a German rabbi uh, writes, a German rabbi in the, um, in, in the 18th century, 19th century, 19th century writes about, about Gentiles and about how it, it, uh, a beloved is, uh, Adam, it clearly means everybody, must mean everybody. There's no, way to there's no way to deny it. So then he says as follows. Listen to the end. It's his commentary on the Mishnah, on this particular teaching in Pirkei Avot, in the Ethics of the Sages. It appears that Israel and the nations each have their own unique virtue. The advantage and virtue of the nations over Israel. Now that's, that's a, when you hear that, the advantage over Israel, I thought we are over everybody, is that they made themselves who they are as righteous Gentiles by their own free will and by their own abilities. This is certainly a higher level than Israel who have been pulled up to their ethical spiritual level by the hair on their heads, by the coercion of God in order to improve them. So Israel ought not credit themselves with a level of their virtue. For whatever perfection God miraculously managed to bring upon in them was because of God's hand and on the merits of their ancestors. So the fact that only Israel in this verse are called human beings is not so much to praise them. It just shows God who called them human beings made them who they are. They did not themselves remove the hard outer covering of their heart to reach a higher level of holiness. In other words, according to those who argue that it's only Israel that's referred to, they, they should know that it's not a virtue. 
if that's the way they want to make the argument. He rejects that argument. But if you want to argue that way, then okay. And then he had listed earlier, by the way, in this paragraph, look at the righteous Gentiles. He, he mentions the Gentile, I don't even know, Janiker, who invented a cure for bubonic plague, um, and then uh, Dracker, who brought the potato to Europe um, and, and saved many from famine, or Gutenberg, who invented the printing press. In other words, he Jews were living among non-Jews. They recognized that not all non-Jews want to kill them and that their righteousness in the non-Jewish world and we have to reach out and the greatest expression of that occurred in the eight, late 18th early 19th century by a chassid who was a mystic a very interesting man who violated actually my teaching earlier about mysticism being narrow-minded he wrote a book called Sefer Habrit this is the book it was published in Brno in 1797 I don't know if you can see it here here's the Here's a copy. I copied from the from the first edition. There are later. Just so you have an idea about this book, this book, since its publication in 1797, has had no less than 40 editions. This was a bestseller. Why was it a bestseller? Because the author Pinchas Horowitz, who was a learned yeshiva student and, as I said, mystic. Uh, 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 in his volume, presented Judaism, uh, a, Jew, a Jewish response to the growth of science and to the world around it. And it became a source text for Hasidim and for religious other Orthodox Jews who were looking for an entry into the world. Understand this. We have a misguided portrait of Orthodoxy in Europe. Before the Second World War, Orthodoxy was going through transition. It wasn't the ultra-Orthodoxy that we know today that rejected the world. Many, many Orthodox centers, including Yeshivot and Lita, embodied uh, young students who were looking to be religious Jews and open to the world simultaneously. Part of the tragedy of the Shoah is that the natural vector of Jewish growth and transformation was broken by the Shoah, and it pushed people back into themselves because of the world had betrayed them. So uh, Horowitz represents that tendency, early tendency. Now, the most outstanding chapter in his work, which is the longest chapter in his work, is a work called Ahavatrahim, Love of Neighbor. So we're going to read a summary of, the, of, of this passage. There's a passage that I didn't include here. Um, so I have it, but I, I mean, I, I, I can share. If someone wants it, it's, it's, uh, I, I, can, I can send it to you afterwards in Hebrew. But this is a summary of some outtakes from what uh, Horowitz is teaching. The essence of neighborly love consists in loving all mankind, all who all, all humanity, all who walk on two legs of whatever people and whatever tongue, by virtue of their identical humanity and their civilization. Builders, farmers, merchants, artisans, each serving the needs of human beings in his or her own way. Human society is to be conceived as a single individual. This is what he's saying, 1797. A chassid composed of many organs and parts. Each person is like an organ or part of this individual. All are interdependent and interconnected like the links of a chain. We're all linked to one another, all humanity. And we make it, we, and as a mystic, he understood that all humanity makes oneness. The pursuit of oneness is achieved because you recognize the image of God in every other human being, and we are part of each other. The, and we're not we're not fulfilled in our own humanity unless we connect to others. The meaning of the scripture "You shall love your neighbor as yourself" is not confined to Jews only, but the sense is your neighbor who is a human being as yourself. 
peoples of all nations are included, any fellow, uh, any fellow humans. And he argues here in this uh, chapter 5, Perikei, that if the text wanted to uh, identify your neighbor as a Jew, it would have said, The Bible knows how to be exclusionary. It doesn't say, love your brother. Brother is a Jew. It says reyacha. Reyacha is neighbor, and it means also uh, uh, certainly non-Jews. Okay, so that's unit number one. The famous Mishnah here will, uh, uh, people know that about the image of God and the implications of the image of God in terms of our link. You can study it on your own. All right, so the summary summary of, of section number one is there are exclusionary teachings that are clearly discriminatory and prejudiced. We have to push back with a rationalist understanding and be careful because mysticism has a hold on people's souls and also because it's a, it's a very Jewish uh, language discourse that engages religious life in a very enticing way. And we have to be careful about the attitudes that it uh, that filter down from certain from certain uh, mystical teachings and push back against them by understanding that Judaism and Jewish law pushes out, not in, and that we need to be inclusive. And that and Horowitz sort of summarizes it all by saying, it, as a mystic, he has a new understanding because the all, the oneness of being, requires an openness to to, uh, to all humanity, and that the project of fulfilling God's presence in the world can only be achieved with all with all peoples. Now, what about Jews and Blacks? So the context for a lot of the tension between Jews and Blacks that emerged certainly in the 90s on campus, I used to hear this, about how Jews are responsible for the slave trade. Now, why are Jews responsible for the slave trade? Well, Noah awakened, and Noah said, cursed be Canaan, Eved Avadim. What does it say here? He said, cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves shall he be to his brothers. And he said, blessed be the Lord, the God, etc., etc. So, What's the problem here? Uh, Canaan is cursed. Uh, however, uh, the the somehow somehow in this uh, the tradition slid from Canaan to uh, Ham's. Uh, first of all, th there's a general question. Ham was the one who violated his father. Whatever he did, revealed his nakedness. Whatever whatever sexually assaulted him. I, in other words, we don't we don't we we. It's it's not clear. There's some sort of mythic core at the uh, at, at, at the base of this story that's that's missing here, leaving us guessing. But something happened to his father's nakedness, and something sexual happened there, right? And so, um, uh, and and Ham is the violator. Yet it's Canaan, his youngest child, who's being cursed, um, and. The 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 the, the, uh, the it, what's extrapolated from that is that it must mean the Kushites who are uh, the another child of Ham who are Black Africans Ethiopians. Now where do we see that? We see that here in the Midrash. The Midrash makes this explicit. I can say this that in the Bible I don't see any prejudice against people of color at all. In fact, we have a source later on. We're not going to be able to read it. Moses married an Ishak Kushit, a black woman. Um, Miriam and Aaron complained about it. God comes to defend Moses. It's clear that not only did Moses do anything uh, bad, but that the Kushit also reflected God's image. And there was, not, uh, uh, you know, and Moses was enhancing God's presence. And, and there's a whole bunch of legends about Moses being a, marrying the queen of Ethiopia and fighting wars when he was in Egypt. I mean, in other words, it's, we, we have the legends in Sefer Hayashar uh, and, and, and about a kingdom that he established. And, but, but clearly the Bible in its essence is not discriminatory. 
says. You are like the Kushites unto me, says God in the prophet in a prophecy. So that's not an issue. Somehow in the beginning of the rabbinic period, there begins there begins to emerge a sense of prejudice about blacks. It's not very uh, uh, well uh, uh, represented. It's not that, in other words, it doesn't become a movement, but it's there in potential. And here we see it because Ham had glanced at his naked father in the Midrash source number 14, his eyes became red because he related what he had seen to others with his mouth, his lips became twisted. Because he turned his face away, ignored his father's condition, the hair of his head and beard was singed. And because he neglected to cover his naked father, he went about naked and his preface extended. You know, it, there's a lot of sexual uh, uh, imagery here and uh, the sexuality, alluding to sexuality of blacks. It's full of prejudice. Uh, this happened to him because the Holy One, blessed be he, exacts retribution measure for measure for what he did to his father. Now, the Midrash asks, why is uh, 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 Canaan cursed? Ham was the one who violated. And uh, it doesn't ask the question, by the way, about, about Cush. That's not asked. And, and the Midrash answers, well, because God blessed Noah's three sons, so uh, Noah couldn't possibly curse uh, his son Ham, so he had to curse uh, Ham's son Canaan. We're going we're gonna to come back to that. And here you have some more information in, in, in Breshid Rabbah, uh, some more um, material that I think is ripe for our understanding of how the prejudice, the prejudice what, what was, was transmitted. Now, I need to ask you for your, uh, your patience for a second, because I, I have to share another text with you. Um, uh, or you know what, I'm going I'm to do it by uh, I'll do it by heart. The Ibn Ezra is the key to understanding this text. All right, and he clarifies everything. All right, first of all, he understands something essential about the book of Genesis. Why is Canaan cursed when Ham violated his father? because the curse is a political moment. The curse of Canaan is, uh, it, it, uh, what do you call it, lends or, or um, sharpens our focus on a theme of the book of Genesis. The Canaanites are morally corrupt and depraved. They can't be trusted. You can't marry them. They rape Dina. They commit uh, homosexual, violent homosexual acts. At every turn, they are sexually immoral, and you can't trust them. They're indecent. Immediately, they want to take your women away. All the stories of Abraham and Isaac, with all the with all the the, the neighbors. Only the family, only the family can be trusted. The, what's the Book of Genesis doing? It's making a sustained argument to delegitimate, delegitimize the Canaanites, and to uh, and to offer a basis for the fact that we have a right to the Holy Land. They lost their right to the Holy Land because they betrayed their moral principles in which they were uh, as created in the image of God. And so that's the purpose. And Ibn Ezra recognizes that that's why Canaan is the one who is who is being cursed. And he says, he's a, he actually says, Canaan is cursed on verse 18. Canaan is cursed and not Cush. So interesting. He seems to be aware of the fact that people are making that argument and associating the curses with Cush, uh, the, the black African. He also, Ibn Ezra, correctly says, that's why, if you look in the text, it's such a good reading. That's why, if you look in the text, it says, when Noah awakened, he, he saw what his youngest child had done. What do you mean youngest child? 
Ham was not his youngest child. Jephthah was his youngest son. But youngest child was an allusion to Beno, Beno meaning Ham, the youngest child of Ham, Ham's youngest child, right? Ham's youngest child, right? That's Canaan. All right, so that's so. So there is this source that says it's the Can it's Canaan who violated uh, Noah. He told Ham about it, and Ham's identified by Noah as being guilty. But it's Canaan, and Canaan is cursed. First, you know, in other words, uh, Canaan because Canaan was the one who was originally who who saw or, or, or violated his his grandfather. This is consistent as it with the theme of the Book of Genesis, and it has nothing to do with the Hamites and with the curse of the of the blacks and with the Cushites at all. And and it's a mistaken identification uh, of the source. All right, now. Uh, Reb Chaim, how many minutes till questions? Uh, uh, I don't know how many people have questions. I'll take, I'll take five more minutes. Great, excellent, excellent. With, your, with, with, with everybody's with everybody's kind permission. Obviously, you're only getting you're only getting a taste of this, and I'm not able to to share you know the the screens. I, so I I, I want to tell you uh, I have to tell you a few more things. All right. So I don't want to make the argument that we are very righteous because. Over the course of time, even though I even though I'm I reject the notion that we um, embraced enslaving Eved Avadim, the curse of Noah, that justifying the enslavement of the of the of the Cushites. Uh, uh, I mean, Ibn Ezra is right. It means the Canaanites. And as I said, it's a political argument. Now, I don't know about justifying our oppression of Canaanites. That's another issue, but it's not today's political question. But certainly it doesn't pertain to Cushites, to blacks, to the extent that those there are those who point the finger at the Torah and the Bible as a source. And as I'm telling you, the Dutch Reformed Church, for instance, in South Africa, this was a holy text. And in many and in many religious circles to this very day, among among uh, Mormons, it was a religious text that blacks are inferior. And you see that God designated them as being inferior, and it justifies their enslavement. All right now, so uh, basically, what happened, by the way, is that as slavery emerged as a practice, as a business practice, then religious teachers developed a rationale for slavery based on the text. And they used the text in this, in this sort of, a, a, they weaponized, as we say today, they weaponized the text, which is already there in potential, and they used it to justify uh, acts of, of slavery. I do want to refer you to an article in the New York Review of Books, I think it was, I forget the year, by David Bryan Davis that you should that you should read if you're interested about Jews in the slave trade. Because Jews, for instance, in Suriname, uh, a Dutch colony, um, owned many slaves and they supported themselves on slave trade. But in the South, uh, Jews were a, of a really, uh, how should I say, small minority, but we were slave owners. There were Jews who were slave owners and there were Jews who were slavers, who owned the ships that brought slaves across the ocean. You need to know this. Davis's piece, Davis was a professor, the Sterling professor of history at Yale. It was the, 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 I think he passed away. Later in his life, he converted to Judaism. He wrote the most authoritative book on slavery. And I think that you can trust his analysis. He has a couple of articles about the Bible and, and, and slavery and blacks and about Jews and slavery. And, and of course, his conclusion is that Jews uh, were not prominent 
in the slave trade, but it needs to be acknowledged that Jews engaged in the slave trade. Now, one of the one of the places in which we encountered this, and uh, and we, we you know we have to, as I said, acknowledgement. That's what that's what what's his name uh, Stendhal says. Um, so first of all, you, if you read Rav Cook, you see how Rav Cook is apologizing for the Torah and its embrace of and its embrace of slavery, and how actually the Torah's notion of slavery is a is, is a higher level than what and what the nation's notion of slavery is. Well, there were two sermons that were delivered in 1861, competing sermons. The first one by Morris Rayfield, who was the rabbi of B'nai Jesher in, in New York City. He was a conservative. He basically trained in yeshiva in Europe, and he was a more conservative person. He himself said he opposed slavery. You'll read the excerpts from his sermon. I have here, um, this, is, this is an edition uh, published in the 19th century. Of, of, the, of the sermon that he gave called Bible View of Slavery. It was distributed all over New York City because New York City was then a center of garment trade, which it remained, Schmatters, and Jews were very prominent in the trade. And they relied on the South for the trade. And, and Rayfield gave the sermon that all the entrepreneurs wanted to hear because what he said was, look, I'm against slavery, I don't like it. But the Torah doesn't say it's wrong. In fact, the 10 commandments, when it talks about Shabbos, mention slaves. So slavery is something in the Torah and William Lloyd Garrison or whatever, Beecher, Beecher, you know, Beecher in Brooklyn, the preacher in, in Brooklyn who's criticizing me. What does he know about Torah? And what does he know? What does he know about God? This is Judaism, standing up against him and responding to him. So this was a sermon delivered in, uh, uh, on, on, a, on, on one Shabbat. The next Shabbat, um, uh, David Einhorn, who's a reform rabbi in Baltimore, in Baltimore, and an ab abolitionist, gives a sermon to, uh, in which he uh, refutes uh, Rayfield, and he says to Rayfield, I think you have to see his language because it's key to our understanding and this will help us summarize. He says, the question exclusively to be decided is whether uh, scripture merely tolerates this institution as an evil, not to be disregarded, and therefore infuses in its legislation a mild spirit gradually to lead to its dissolution. The argument is as follows. Einhorn understands Torah better than Rayfield, better than the, than the yeshiva trained rabbi, because he says Torah includes its own capacity for revision. That's what's great about Torah. The Torah revives its understanding of slavery. We'll see that in a moment. Or whether it favors, approves of, and justifies and sanctions it in its, more, in its moral aspect. How could Jews, he said, who were freed from slavery in Egypt, justify enslaving, enslaving another people? Einhorn was run out of town two weeks after he delivered this and had to run for his life because his congregants and the city of Baltimore were, were, were up in arms against him because of his argument against slavery. And Jews were on both sides of the question. So let me just conclude with the following. All right, because I don't have time to go through it. I want to continue Einhorn's argument. What's Einhorn's argument? We'll see it here. The first commandment in the 10th commandment, I am the Lord your God who took you out of the land of Egypt, the house of bondage. Okay, I'm going to make three points here to conclude. One is, why is it that the Torah says, I am the Lord your God who took you out of the land of Egypt, the house of bondage? It could have said, I am the Lord your God who took you out of the land of Egypt. Enough. We know Egypt is a house of bondage because it wants to teach us, God is the redeemer of slaves. Who is God? God frees slaves. And I learned from my teacher, Rabbi Soloveitchik, that there's no statement in the Torah that doesn't have some imperative, some normative value. What's the normative value of this statement? The statement is, just like God is the redeemer of slaves, 
so too must we be redeemers of slaves. So therefore, the Torah legislates freedom for slaves if you knock out a tooth. No other, no other tradition in the ancient Near East had such legislation. If a slave runs away, you have to return him to, you, you can't return him to his owner. He has to be left to be free. That The civil war was fought over that principle about, about runaway slaves. That's in Deuteronomy. A low tasky shall not turn over a slave to his to to his master. And you have I, I I quoted the Rambam, but I want you to see to me what it seems to me is the the crowning the crowning glory. There well there are two other aspects. One 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 is the Shabbos commandment in Deuteronomy. The Ten Commandments are repeated, except that in Deuteronomy there's a, the reason for Shabbos is not creation but the Exodus. So Shabbos is linked to freedom. So the essential nature of Shabbos itself means means freedom. And that why why is Shabbos so significant for freedom? Because of the phrase that's added in Deuteronomy. It doesn't appear in Exodus. So that your male and female slave may rest as you do. They're like you. They're human beings. And as I say to people, once your slave rests as you do, it's a different ball game. They're no longer slaves. This is the undoing of slavery gradually. The midst, the reason, and I have other sources I can argue, the reason that we were taken to Egypt was to indelibly impress upon us our need to be redeemers of slaves because the world doesn't know that. It doesn't know it today. It doesn't know it today. That is slavery. There are 20 million slaves in the world at least today, and we don't know that slavery is anti-human and somehow our revolutionary role with we, we, we sort of were given this gift to bring to the world the message, free the slaves. So we have to stand up for these principles, and which, which can go much further, of course, but now is the time for us to take a stand. I'm going to stop here and take some questions. Please. Okay, beautiful, beautiful, Reb Chaim. So much history, as much passion as there is clarity, and so much to discuss here. So what I'd like to do, actually, is hear from a bunch of folks. Um, uh, at once, uh, then maybe you'll just have a closing response to whatever you want to respond. And uh, normally we stop right at the hour, but there's so much content here and there's so many questions still to wrestle with um, that um, you obviously feel free to, to sign off whenever you want. It's not like walking out of a room, so so you can sign off whenever you want, but um, but we'll, but we'll, we'll extend the time a little bit. So please, um, you're welcome to post in the side, but we'd like to hear from some folks. Um, if you'll unmute yourself and uh, and speak up, let's move to gallery view, please. Oh, uh, let me. Okay. Uh, yeah. Whoever. Uh, okay. Who wants to? I uh, I know a number of you said you had questions in Ooh. common. Yes, please. You have to unmute yourself and ask a question. Okay. So my question is. Is there some inherent morality in Judaism that makes us want to do good? Okay. Okay. Okay, someone else? Oh, Rabbi Almug left already. I know he had something. Rabbi Yitzchak, did you say you had something? You're still on mute. 
There he is. Gave me a hard time unmuting, unfortunately. I was just, I had two things. Uh, first of all, I wanted to ask a, a technical question that I noticed in the one of the first. Speak clearly, please. I, I don't, I don't hear you clearly. One of the first uh, sources that you quoted, Rav Chaim, said uh, it, it talked about an Oveda Vodazara, like in the that that first of Shimon of Shimon Bar Yochai, and it, uh, and you immediately uh, included all goyim. I wasn't sure whether that's part of a censorship thing and you, you were just ignoring the censorship or whether there's an issue there. And maybe maybe that, that whole thing was only talking about uh, idol worshippers, which would, uh, which would uh, bring, change the nature of the problem and also uh, narrow it down to a great deal. Okay, that that I, I, you know what, it's it, 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 it's a good point. But, but remember that Shimon Bar Yochai... It, saw the world around him as being a world of idolaters. The Romans were idolaters. In other words, they, I, I, I think aside from Jews, he didn't see the world as, as uh, you know, as uh, uh, clean of, of, from idolatry. I'm, I, 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 oh, we were supposed to take a series of questions. Just uh, one second, Rabbi Yitzchak. Is there anybody else, Shmuley, whose question you want to take before I answer? Yeah, 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 yeah. There, 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 there's a few others. I see Cheryl. Cheryl, do you want to speak out yours or do you want me to read yours? Go ahead and read it. Okay, so Cheryl writes, we live in a time when more than 50% of marriages are intermarriages. We're confronted by the tradition of not permitting non-Jews to be buried in a Jewish cemetery. Uh, as traditional Jews, how do we ad address this challenge? I guess this has to go back to the purity issues you were relating to as well. Okay, uh, anyone else? Don't be shy. I have another question, if I may. Great. Or, yeah, or please sorry. do. Yeah, great. Um, uh, Reb Chaim quoted, I, I think it was his Rebbe, I think, or, or a professor, a Stendhal. Stendhal. I called him my Rebbe, Christopher Stendhal. Right. And uh, I identified, well, he actually identified extremely strongly with his first two uh, strategies. He first, first identified the immoral problem, then contextualize it, which those two things I think are crucial and critical and fantastic. And the next two, I, I, I had a bit of trouble with, with he says, and then reinterpret. Well, I think there are other strategies that one could take. And uh, if that doesn't work, then to condemn. I, I jotted down what you said. I was wondering if you, if you yourself identified with, the, particularly the third, the third strategy of after you contextualize to reinterpret, because there are other ways of, of solving these issues other than necessarily reinterpreting. I can suggest them myself, but, I, but I'm, not, I'm not running the show here tonight. So I wanted to ask you what your thoughts might be on, on that particular yeah. methodology. Give me an example of, of, of another strategy that you would employ. What would you call your, the other strategy? Well, my, my own personal tendency in situations like that once you've contextualized it, so you can usually find the value there, which has uh, which has eternal worth, and like if you just leave out all the all the uh, the the troubling moral aspects that we find in ancient texts, and just take what 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 the the one step further the Torah was taking us. Then you'll often come across very beautiful values which are still still valid today. Okay, Rev. Can I interpret which 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 is a bit of a departure from reinterpreting is often playing around with with with, with non-truth. 
It's apologetic, right? Yes. Reb Chaim, can I, can I take the last question if no one else is going to jump in? Absolutely. So I was torn. You know, a few years ago, the Pope said, the Pope said, um, you can't be a Christian and hate immigrants. And he was sp speaking about a specific person in a specific context. But you can't be a Christian and hate immigrants. And on the one hand, I loved it because he's saying what it means to be religious is be ethical. On the other hand, I wondered if it was a dodge because you can be Christian and hate immigrants. That's the problem. Just like when someone says, oh, you can't be a religious Jew and cheat on your taxes and be a racist. You're not religious. But actually, you can be a religious Jew and be racist. Right. So I wonder, like, how do you think about apologetics in this sense? Like, what is what is the identity line as to, you know, um, uh, do we because part of what you're saying is you have to uproot it from the tradition. In fact, you can still be you can still be a religious Christian and be a hater, a religious Jew right. and be a hater. Right. So, all right, a couple of things. All right, so let, let me start from those. Let, let, let me actually, uh, Elaine, was that the first? Uh, Eileen, Eileen. So Eileen, yeah, maybe this is just a, a too simple a, a, a principle, um, but it's one that everybody can get their hands around, and that is the, the guiding principle, ethical principle for me is right at the beginning of creation. And that's every human being is created in the image of God. That's a very big idea. And, and, and it imposes, not only is it a way of looking at others, it imposes obligations on me. That's a great principle. Right? Because I have to live up to an expectation. And it also, it allows for a sense of equality, allows us to cut across differences. If everybody was created in the image of God, it binds us with other human beings. So to me, that's to me that's a guiding moral idea. There are, I mean, there are obviously others, but that you know, and 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 they were they were. Well, yeah, go ahead. Let me um, go elaborate on that. The Old Testament is used by both Christians and Jews, but my question is, why does it seem that the Jews have morality where many of the Christians do not? Well, it, I'm glad that you I'm glad that you identify it that way because Christianity had the opposite point of view, that it was the New Testament that promoted love and the Old Testament and what they call the Old Testament. I prefer the Hebrew, you know, the Tanakh uh, promoted law, and that we and and law was you know by by its nature distinctive, separate. Uh, uh, Jews were uh, clannish, uh, and the church looked upon us as being particularists, the great sin of particularism. They were the ones who were, who were universalists. So, you know, uh, uh, if you want to be prejudiced, you can read your, you know, that they, they decided, they read their tradition in a negative way. They, they had to do it to justify Christianity. So the question is, at what point do you grow up and you say, we can be Christianity without stepping on the Jews and everybody else? And, and we, who've been around for a long time, should have the maturity not to have the need to, to suppress anything. You know, we, we, we've survived. Um, and we, we don't have to negate, we, we don't need that, uh, perhaps. All right. So that, that's the first thing. Now, uh, regarding uh, Yitzhak's questions, um, so, so my first, you know, I, I, I hear you when you talk about uh, Avodah Zarah, about idolaters. It, it, it doesn't help me much in this following sense that uh, even though it seems to me that uh, you, yeah, you uh, and, uh, and I have no trouble uh, in, uh, in understanding that you can't simply classify people of a different religion as being idolaters, 
not everybody feels the same way. Not all religious Jews feel the same way. And they still teach that Christians are idolaters. You know, the, the, uh, that's not, in other words, not everybody has even, has even, you know, embraced the toast vote on, 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 on idolatry. Um, so I, you know, and, and even, and the way they look upon, uh, upon Muslims, I mean, you know, there's no question that Muslims are monotheists, but that seems not to be a factor in people's capacity uh, to be to be prejudiced about them religiously. So I, I think that uh, we, we, you know, we, we need to interrogate that dimension of our of our teachings, um, and and that leads me to the second part of your question. You know, one of the real issues for me is that since we're not inclined to condemn then the teaching remains on the books. And whether it's your approach which tries to find something nice in the essence of the teaching, or what I said, which is reinterpretation, and I wouldn't reject your approach. I mean, reinterpretation is one strategy. It's not the only strategy. I was quoting Stendhal. Um, I, I think we have, we have a problem. And, and by the way, as, as, a, as a rabbinic Jew, reinterpretation is not sufficient because I have also contrary opinions. That's, by the way, the great, you know, sort of the great Jewish advantage. We're not afraid of machloket. So there is an opinion that's prejudiced. We have an opinion that, you know, the Rambam doesn't accept that, that, that reading. Uh, we have to sort of revive that opinion and push aside the other one. And there I get to Shmuley's question, which is, and acknowledge that any attempt to perpetuate Rabbi Shumbayochai's opinion is not good. We shouldn't be, I mean, I know Shumbayochai, all right, I mean that sincerely, with, you know, with all due respect to Shumbayochai, this teaching of Shumbayochai is dangerous. Why do I need it? Why do I need to justify it? Why do I need to find another way around it at all? Because the, I, I, know that, I know a little bit about his intention. I know his historical context. I know what he was fighting against. And maybe he, would, you know, he, he somehow was justified in, in his opinion. But we have, other, we, have, we have other opinions. That's what's so great about Judaism. And we ought to come forward with that other. And we, and we need, surely, to own the prejudicial teachings in our tradition. Christianity can be prejudicial and Judaism can be prejudicial. And we need to condemn that because not everybody is, is as sensitive a human being as, as some of us are who, who are on this on this call and embrace a more militant form of their of their religiosity and use their religion as a way of asserting their 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 their, their beliefs. How do we how, how do we how do we respond to them? How do we reject their opinion? How do we convince people that their opinions are wrong? Mayor Kahana drew on sources. We didn't people didn't take him seriously. We didn't mount an attack against his teaching and demonstrate that there is an alternative way of reading the tradition in a way that's inclusive. Before Mea Kahana, I have to tell you, I was raised in a modern Orthodox Zionist home. Nobody asked the question about how Judaism and democracy were compatible. Not that it wasn't a question, but we, 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 we understood it's something we could address. And we didn't say, we never said it was a contradiction. Kahana got up and said it was a contradiction. Now that's universally accepted that there's a contradiction between democracy and Judaism. How could that, how did we let, we let it happen. 
because in my day, there wasn't sufficient, there were no Jose students, and there, wasn't that, there weren't people who had a mind who knew that they could fight against it. And we need to fight against it by saying that's wrong, it's prejudiced, and it's racist. And that Judaism is not racism. We can't allow, we can't allow, I'm sorry, we can't allow the racist dimensions of Judaism to gain legitimacy. We have to, right, we have to argue against them strenuously because it pops up all the time. That's the danger in our tradition. And people can draw on Torah to justify, and they'll continue to do so unless we're vigilant in our response. All right. I mean, I think we're we're over time. I I, I, I let, let let me conclude. I, I read I read an essay by a South African Jew, uh, who uh, and he concluded his little essay the following way. He said, "This moment and this choice remind me of the words of Otto Fugard, the white South African playwright, from his 1989 play, My Children, My Africa. The clocks are ticking, my friends." History has got a strict timetable. If we're not careful, we might be remembered as the country who arrived too late. That's Fugard. So the author here writes, his name is Robert Bank. The historic moment takes me back to our family conversations in Cape Town in the 1960s and 70s about the choices Jews face when others must fight for justice. Time moves fast. Time, this is a time for us to do and act. Let's remember that we are what we do, not only what we say. We start with Heschel. We're going to have a good conversation. We're going to talk about this, but we got to do something, says Heschel. And we end with Robert Bank. We have teachings, but then now what are we going to do to transform America and to uh, interpret our vision in such a way that we can include others in, in the community that we try to build together? Thank you, and uh, hope to see you again. Thank you, Rabbi Chaim Sadler-Feller. Thank you all for joining us. Tomorrow at 1 o'clock, we have two options. We have a class for members on gratitude, preparing for Thanksgiving, and a class at 1 o'clock also on farm workers, Jews working in the farm worker field. Wow. Thank you for joining, and let's continue to fight racism in the name of Judaism. Have a great day.